Good morning. Uh, passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much, um, Lord, just for this space to meet. Um, thank you for bringing everyone here safely. Uh, Lord, I just thank you that we can get together this morning and worship you, uh, and learn more about you, Lord. Uh, as Tim comes up to speak, Lord, I just pray, um, Lord, that you calm all of our hearts and minds, Lord, that you take away any distraction uh, we may have from the week before, Lord, or the week coming up, uh, just so we can hear what you have for us this morning. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. I want to welcome you to Phoenix Bible Church. If you're new, a special welcome to you. If you're not new, welcome back in the new year. And a special welcome also to our ASU and GCU students. You guys out there? All right, back for another semester. Excited for you guys. And we are excited as a church to launch into this new series in the book of 1 Peter called Living Hope. And it's a book that's all about hope in the midst of suffering. And as we go into a new year, the new year is all about hope, isn't it? I mean, you even hear it in sayings like, at the end of the year, people say things like, couldn't close out 2015 fast enough. And what are they saying when they say that? But as we enter into a new year, there's hope that maybe they can leave some things behind in 2015. I remember reading an article this week that, that said this, as 2015 comes to a close... What do you need to leave behind? Which sounds great and sounds inviting, but what if the things you need to leave behind don't leave you behind? Like what if they continue into the new year and there's nothing you can do about that? You see, as we look at the new year and we think about hope just in the new year, it's really false hope, isn't it? I mean, as we get into the new year and things don't leave us behind and we continue with them and then we're in the midst of suffering it doesn't just vanish because we turned the calendar, does it? I know some of you, even though I don't know you personally, may be in the midst of suffering. Maybe you're in the midst of it right now. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe for some of you it's spiritual. And as you start the new year, you're in the, the thick of it. And so as we look at what it means to hope, we have to see something more than just a, a turn of the calendar. I know for me, uh, there's been suffering to start the new year. Uh, extended family, relationships, jobs, marriages, there's suffering. Even in other ways, just this week, my family and I went through some suffering, and, and I began to get frustrated with God in the midst of this suffering. And I began to say to God, God, we have this big weekend coming up. It's the start of our new year as a church. We're starting this new series in the book of 1 Peter like, God, when are you going to take away this suffering so that I can focus and study in this book on suffering? And in that moment, I began to hear God say graciously to me that I don't want you just to study it, that I want it to study you, that I don't want you just to prepare it. I want you to live it so you can know this hope before you proclaim this hope. 
And so as I stand before you, I don't know your situation. I don't know if you're coming out of suffering in the midst of it, if it's around the corner. But I can tell you I'm leaning into the same hope that I'm pleading with you to lean into this morning. Tim Keller, an author and a pastor in New York, says this. He says, you'll never get through life if you don't know how to get through suffering. And you'll never get through suffering if you don't have hope. So I don't know where you are this morning, but you need to know as we start this book of 1 Peter that we have access to a real hope, to a a living hope that's not in a new year, but it's in a timeless God. And so as we launch into this book, I want you to see that over and over in the midst of your situation. And this morning we're going to see a little bit of a backdrop, so look at the verse with me. Verse 1 of chapter 1, Peter gives us the backdrop for the book. He says, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle literally means one who is sent, so it's a messenger, an ambassador. It would be as though Peter has full authority of Jesus, that he's been sent by Jesus directly to these people, that these words are God's words. That Peter, if you know the story of his life, was one of Jesus' closest leaders. He had three years walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, seeing Jesus perform miracles, seeing Jesus raise people from the dead. He saw Jesus have one-on-one conversations that changed people's lives for eternity. But he also saw Jesus stand before crowds and proclaim who he was and what he was going to do. And the multitudes began to follow him. And so Peter has had a front row seat to all of that. I mean, imagine what that would be like to live every day with Jesus, to do life with Jesus. You got a Bible trivia question? In the middle of the night, you got the best Bible teacher in the world. On the face of the planet, you can go to Jesus and ask him, imagine what it would have been like to be Peter. But if you know more of his story, you know it wasn't always high moments. That Peter had some low moments. That Peter at times doubted God. That he doubted Jesus. That Jesus told him, you're not going to be a ruler, you're going to be a servant. And Peter was confused by that. All the way up until the death of Jesus. Jesus goes to a cross, not a throne, and Peter denies Jesus. So Peter had his high moments, he had his low moments, but the point is, and what you see in the Gospels, is that this is a man who knows Jesus Christ. He's been transformed Jesus Christ by, by Jesus Christ. Perhaps the best example of this is in the book of Acts, early on. Peter preaches the first gospel message and it says over 3,000 people come to know Jesus. And so as we read these words, Peter, an apostle, a messenger of Jesus, you need to know that these people receiving this letter, they would have treasured these words. That they're experiencing suffering and trials that are displaced from their home. They would have treasured just these words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that these are the words of God. Do you see that? That in that greeting, Peter's saying, these are the words of Jesus. These aren't just my words. These are the words of God, that they would have treasured those words. And listen, we need to treasure those words. We need to treasure the words in 1 Peter because these are the words of God. That's why the Bible is so important to us. It's what's in our name. 
That's when we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, because these are the words of God. That's when we invite you into community groups during the week to unpack what this means and what it looks like in your life, because these are the words of God. That's why we're going through the book of 1 Peter, because these are the words of God. That's why we want you to be here on Sundays to go through this and dive into it with us, to read it on your own, because these are the words of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he writes this letter, these words from God to elect exiles, it says in the second part of verse 1. They are a people literally who belong, they belong to God, but they don't belong. In another way, they're elect, but they're also exiles. And so as you see that word elect, it means they belong to God, they've been chosen by God to be a part of his family. As you read the Bible, you see the focus is always God coming to us, that God first loves us, that God comes to us, that he chooses us. And maybe if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, and maybe you're thinking New Year, some resolutions, I'm going to clean myself up, I'm going to start doing the right things, maybe I'm going to be religious, and you begin to think, and maybe you won't say it, but you're here this morning because you, you hope then in your effort, somehow you can gain approval with God. That you can align yourself with God if you just shuffle everything correctly. You need to know that in Scripture we see in Romans 3 that no one seeks God. No one, not even you. That we are of a depraved mind, a depraved will, that even from birth, one of the first words our babies learn is what? No. No. How does that happen? Because we don't seek God. God comes to us. But listen, you need to know this is, this is good news. In fact, it's, it's great news that God chooses to love people who would never choose to love him. That God chooses the, the sinful. He chooses the undeserving. He chooses the wicked. And he says, I'm coming after you. Do you see that? If you know Jesus, if you have a relationship with God this morning, God came for you. He didn't expect you to come to him. He came to you. And he doesn't just have pity on us. He doesn't just make us servants. He adopts us into his family. 1 John 3 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. It's a great love that is bestowed on you, and it's not dependent on you. It's bestowed on you. So God chooses, God cares for, God keeps you because of his great love that he bestows on you. Do you see that? As soon as you think about our culture, the way we treat different things, a lot of times we care for things, we choose things, we keep things based on their value to us, don't we? So you think about a new car. Maybe some of you have done this. You get a new car, and what's the first thing you do? You wash it, right? It's brand new. It's clean, but you wash it again, right? You wax it. You clean out the inside. You tell the kids, like, no food in the car. It's a new rule. We've got to keep this new car smell. It's so fantastic. What do you do when you go to a store in the parking lot? You park as far away as possible so you don't get a ding on your door. But then what inevitably happens, right? Over time, that car loses its value. 
It loses its value to you. And you don't take such good care of it anymore. You don't wash it as much as you used to. You don't wax it as much as you used to. You think wax is kind of expensive. What does it really do anyway? You think my kids are hungry. Just let them eat that granola bar. And it just spills all in the car. And you're just like, oh, well, the, the new car smell, that was gone a long time ago. Who cares? When you park in a parking lot, no longer do you park at the farthest corner of the lot. But instead, you're trying to squeeze into one of those spots that's meant for a hybrid. You know you do this. And then inevitably, over time, the car loses value more and more, and you discard it, and you get another one, right? You need to know that God is not like that. That God does not operate like that. That he chooses you. He cares for you. He keeps you not because of your value, not based on your worth, but because of his great love that he bestowed on you. Listen, if you know Jesus this morning, you belong to God. He cares for you, he keeps you, and he will do that forever. Whether you have a good day or you have a bad day, whether you're going through suffering or you're in the midst of bliss as we start the new year, that as we see that word elect, that should cause a celebration to well up within you about the great love that God has bestowed on you through the cross of Christ. So as we look at the people that Peter is writing to, they were a people who belonged. They were a part of God's family. If you know Jesus, you belong. You're a part of God's family. But as we keep reading, we see that they're not only uh, belonging, but they also don't belong in a different way. The second part of verse 1 tells us they're exiles. It lists off these scattered Roman provinces in modern-day Turkey. And this is different. If you've read the New Testament at all, this is different, right? Most letters, most books that we read are written to a specific church. They're usually written to an urban context. But in 1 Peter, we have these Roman provinces, and they're scattered across a huge area. So these people that belong to God are, are scattered. They're displaced from their home. And, and as I think about my life, I don't know about you, uh, I'm displaced from my home, literally. I, I grew up in Texas and uh, spent a little bit of time in Portland, and then my family and I moved to Phoenix. Some of you maybe were born in Phoenix, you're, you're Phoenicians, right? Yeah? All right. So we got a couple, two. And, uh, but I would imagine some of you, you just moved here, maybe in the last five years. Maybe some of you are thinking of moving, and just so you know, you can't. You, you need to stay and be a part of Phoenix Bible Church. But a lot of you, maybe you're like me, and you're, you're displaced from your home. This isn't where you grew up. And so I remember as we moved here from Portland, uh, just acclimating to the city, and, and we love this city, but it, it did take some time for us to get used to everything. It's just a new place, right? And I remember my daughter, who is six years old, she would always talk about these these dirt piles. And she would say how she wants to go play on the dirt piles and we need to go walk around the dirt piles. And I never really knew what she was talking about. And we're driving down the street one day. At the time, we lived right by a dirt pile. And she's like, see, Daddy, I want to go on that. Like, I want to, I want to walk up that. And I just said, sweetie, those are mountains. <laughs> they're, just they're just brown, excuse me. Uh, she came from the Northwest for a little bit of time, 
And mountains were a little bit different there. And I had to explain to her, these are mountains too, they're just brown. And over time, there were different things like that, being in a new place, away from home, that we had to get used to, that we had to acclimate to, the culture, the people. All of those things were new to us. And over time, we began to love them, but it was difficult at first. And you see these people, these are exiles. They're displaced from their home. And not only that, as we go on to read 1 Peter, we find out in the rest of the letter they experience persecution they experience trials, and they experience suffering. And so these are a people that belong, but they don't belong. And then we come to verse 2, which is still part of the greeting portion of this letter, which is different than most of our greetings. Right, as you saw people this morning, maybe you said, hey, how's it going? Hey, happy new year. Peter, a little bit different. As he's still in the greeting, he says, hey, how's it going? Did you know that God is your father who knows everything? is making you more like him and has paid for your sin with his blood. Peter manages to give us the whole message of the Bible in his greeting in just two verses. And so I want to look at that with you the rest of our time. We see three things of our hope that we have rooted in God, and it's this, that God knows he has a plan and he's made provision. So God knows he has a plan and he's made provision. That's where we're headed. The first thing we see is that God knows. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge is an awareness of something before it happens or exists. That God is aware of everything. God's aware of everything. God knows everything. The foreknowledge of God the Father. That he's aware that he knows everything. Past present, and future. That means this, that nothing surprises God. All the crazy things that we see in our world today doesn't surprise God. God knows everything. As I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about this movie called The Guardians. And uh, as a father of three, it's this weird thing that happens that movies and songs that pop in my head are different than they used to be. So if you've never seen the movie Guardians, it's an animated film for kids. But as I was reading this, this, this film popped into my head because there's this key character named Jack Frost. Maybe you've seen the movie. Jack Frost helps all these kids sl sled down mountains and have a lot of fun and, and sprays ice everywhere and, and is a lot of fun. And Jack Frost uh, does all this, but he can't be seen. And then later in the movie, he's kind of lost hope. A lot of people are losing hope, and he's in this little kid's room, which is actually kind of creepy, but... You know, it's animated film, Jack Frost, so we're not creeped out by that. And he's in Jack Frost, or Jack Frost is in this little boy's room, and the kid begins to hope in Jack Frost. He sees the snowflakes and, and the ice, and he begins to hope in Jack Frost. And Jack Frost is amazed at one point because the kid, first, for the first time, sees Jack Frost. He's aware of him, and, and he goes ballistic, like, you can see me? What? Like, have you seen this? Have you seen the movie? You can see me, and he just goes off and starts painting the walls with ice because he's Jack Frost. And you see this hope overwhelm him because for the first time he's seen, he's, someone's aware of him, and someone knows him. Listen, that's just a, a kid movie. It's an animated film that we can laugh at, but I think it depicts something real in each one of us and each one of you this morning, that we have a deep longing, a deep desire to be seen, 
to be known, to know that somebody is aware of us, specifically in your suffering. I, I don't know if you were in the midst of that or if you have been or if it's upon you in the future, but you know in those times when you're suffering, particularly in those times, you, you kind of wonder, like, does anybody see this? Is anybody aware of this? Does anybody know this? And maybe you have some friends, maybe you have some family who ask you questions, but even then you're like, do they really see? Do they really know? Are they really aware of what I'm going through? You need to know that just in this simple phrase, the foreknowledge of God the Father, that God knows. God knows past, present, future. God is completely aware of your situation. Scripture tells us that God doesn't sleep or slumber. He's not like us. He's completely aware. He completely knows. He completely sees you even in the midst of your suffering. Psalm 139, David says, you know when I sit and when I rise. We see that he knows us even in our mother's womb, that he's numbered the hairs on our head that God sees God is aware, and God knows you this morning, whatever you're going through. Now, some of you hear that and are encouraged. Some of you hear that, and maybe you begin to connect the dots, and you start thinking, well, if God knows, and if he's truly God, then why doesn't he change things? Maybe you're thinking about a financial situation, a relational situation, an emotional situation in your life, and you're thinking, okay, well, that's great, Tim. God sees it. God's aware. God knows. Why doesn't he change it then? If he's a good God, why why wouldn't he change? Why wouldn't he take away my suffering? It's a normal thought to have, but you need to know in that thought process, you need to be comforted with this simple truth that God knows and he knows better than you do. Do you see that? That as we look at scripture, we see that God is infinite, we are finite. That God is all powerful, we are not. That God knows the whole story, we just know a couple chapters. And so God is making things good. He's working things together for good, scripture tells us. Because he knows everything. He's making everything good, making it together for his good because he can actually see everything, because he knows everything, and you and I don't. We just see a couple pieces of the puzzle, and they look off, and and God is saying, no, they're exactly where I want them to be. There's a greater picture that you can't see right now. And listen, that's something you have to trust, that we trust that God is good, good, God is all-powerful, God is sovereign. And we have to trust that. I would encourage you, if you're still wrestling with that, to wrestle with it, to get to a point, to tell God, to tell him, I I don't know if I trust you. Help me to trust you more, that you're aware of this, that this is for my good, even though it doesn't seem like it. That we can be comforted knowing that God is aware, that he sees us, that he knows everything. And not only that, we can be comforted and have a hope because we know God has a plan. Look at verse Two, the second part of verse 2. It says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is a big word for set apart. For the Christian, it means this, that you're set apart from the world to become more like Jesus. That if you know him, you're becoming more like him. That's sanctification. That God has a plan in your suffering 
and it's sanctification. It's to make you more like him. And sometimes we forget that, right? Sometimes many of us assume God has forgotten about us. Maybe something's happened in your life. Maybe a difficult situation arises. Maybe that suffering that you wanted to leave behind, it's, it's carrying with you into 2016. And you begin to think, like, maybe God has forgotten about me. Maybe he, he doesn't have a plan. Like, maybe he doesn't know what he's doing in this situation. And listen, just, just look right at me just for a second. You, you need to know that you're normal. <laughs> if that's you, you're normal. That if you doubt, if you doubt God's plan in the midst of your suffering, you're normal. And listen, that's why we need the church. That's why we need community. That's why we need us. Is because so many times in a vacuum, in the midst of our suffering, we begin to wonder and doubt begins to creep in, like, does God really have a plan? Is this really where I'm supposed to be in this job, with these friends, with this church? Because it's so hard. Like, does God really have a plan? And in that vacuum, in that moment by yourself, you may wonder that. And you may think, everybody else has it figured out. I'm the exception. Maybe you're sitting on a row this morning and you assume that the trial you're going through and the doubt you feel and wondering if God has a plan, you assume you're the only one in this room, that everybody else must have this figured out. They look nice, they dress nice for Sunday. They said they were doing good when I talked to them, that maybe I'm the only one who feels this. Listen, you need to know that you're not. And that's why we need each other. That's why we need the church. That's why we need community. Is so we get around people and as we begin to talk about our own doubt, that God has a plan. What am I doing here? Other people begin to say, you know what? I've been there. I've been there. And here, here's how God showed up. Here's how God worked his plan through my doubt. That other people may say, I am there that I'm wrestling with the same thing. Let's talk about how to wrestle with that and lock arms and trust Jesus together. That's why you need each other. That's why you can't do this thing by yourself. That's why Zach said this isn't a conference to attend. It's a community, a family to participate in. So we invite you to, to join a community group, to be known so that you can reach out across the aisle and have someone else who's in process with you help you along in your doubt. So if you feel that way, you need to know you're normal. And we even see it in the Bible. Moses, in the Old Testament, God appears to Moses with a promise that he would deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. Uh, it doesn't go smoothly if you know the story. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of trial. And we see how Moses responds, at least at one point, Exodus 5.22, it says this. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought me brought trouble on these people. Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. So Moses is saying, God, are you sure this is the plan? Are you sure you have a plan? Are you sure this is what we were supposed to do? Because it doesn't seem like it right now. Listen, that's Moses, one of the most influential leaders in all of the Bible. And so you need to know if you doubt you're in good company. But as we look at Moses' life, we can see in hindsight that God did have a plan, didn't he? That his plan was to rescue the Israelites. He did it in a different way than they thought. But through all their trials, God was sanctifying them. 
God was sanctifying them. He was revealing who he was and his character and his nature. And he was in process of making these people more like him in ways that he couldn't have done in smoother circumstances. Do you see that? That when you're in the midst of suffering, that God has a plan and it's to make you more like him. He's revealing who he is, his character, his nature, and he's asking you to be more like him, to see how you can be more like him in ways that you could never have done if things had gone smoothly. Do you see that? That God has a plan and we can trust it even in the midst of our suffering. There's an article in the New York Times on suffering. It said this, when people remember the past, they don't only talk about happiness, but it's often the ordeals that seem most significant. That people shoot for happiness but feel formed through suffering. They shoot for happiness but feel formed through suffering. This week I was talking to an older friend of mine, an older pastor in the city, And we began to talk about church and life and ministry and all those things and family. And he began to recount a story of uh, one of his daughters, his oldest daughter, I believe, uh, had gotten pregnant before she was married. And he's a pastor at at a decent-sized church, and um, people began to hear about this. There was some embarrassment. There was some scrutiny because of this. And he talked about just how, how difficult that was, but he said he, he decided to get up on a Sunday and just be honest and say, hey, this is what's happened, just briefly. This is our situation. It's not what we planned. It's not what we hoped for, but it's where God has us, and we're going to love our daughter through this trial, and we ask that you do the same, and we ask that you pray for us along the way. And he just talked about how difficult that time it was a long time ago, but he just talked about how difficult that time was in his life and his family's life. But that through that process, that he began to realize his need for God in a way he had never seen before. That he proclaimed God's, that everybody needed God all the time, every Sunday, but that he felt his own need in a different way in that moment. And as he began to share this with people in a very vulnerable spot, he began to grow an authenticity in his heart that he didn't have in the same way before that it bled into the rest of the church, that he talked about that people thought, if I can share this on stage, then if he can share this on stage, then I can at least share this with my friend. If the pastor can share this on stage, then I can at least share this with my community group. And he began to talk about how this situation, as tough as it was, cultivated authenticity in his life and his church's life. How it cultivated compassion as he knew how to minister to other people who had gone through similar circumstances or other circumstances that it grew a compassion within him and his church. And he talked about as difficult as his time was, that it was his most formative years as a person and as a pastor. Maybe some of you have been through similar things. Where you look back in hindsight and you see, man, God was forming me through those trials that it made you who you are today, that you got a little bit more of Jesus each time he broke you, he reformed you, that he was sanctifying you. Oftentimes we can't see that in the moment, can we? But as we look back, we know that God hasn't forgotten us, that he's been forming us, that this morning God hasn't forgotten you in the midst of your suffering, that he is forming you, he's making you more like him, and we need to trust that. 
The third thing, the last thing we see is that God made provision. Look at the third part of verse 2. It says, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You see that phrase probably sticks out to you, sprinkling with his blood. In most Old Testament sacrifices, blood was sprinkled on an altar. So Peter's referring back to that to give imagery for the blood that was shed by Jesus on the cross. So as we see the sprinkling of blood by Jesus, that, that once in the Old Testament, you would sprinkle blood on an altar to pay for sin as a one-time payment. But as Jesus comes, the perfect son of God, and he dies a death in your place, and he sheds his blood on the cross for you, that that's a death that he died once for all. That that's blood he shed to sacrifice as a sacrifice for sins once for all, for all of sin, past, present, and future. And so Peter is referencing that act with the sprinkling of his blood. And so we fast forward to the New Testament. 1 John 1, 7 tells us the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from sin. That we have provision, whether we're suffering or whether we're not, from Jesus Christ through his blood. That's why it says grace and peace can be multiplied to you. Even to a people who are in the midst of suffering, that grace and peace could not only come to them, but it could abound. It could be multiplied because they are rightly connected to their creator. Their sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. That he's not coming back to do it again. That it was done for good once for all. And so listen, maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Maybe you're privately thinking to yourself, like, I don't belong here. I mean, this is the last place I would expect myself to be. I'm not like these other people. I mean, if you knew what I've done, if you knew what I'd seen, if you knew what I experienced, I'm unclean. And I came here today for, for some hope, but if you're honest, you're sitting there and you're having these thoughts, like, I'm not like the rest of these people. I don't belong you need to know that even if you have sin, sickness, strife, suffering all around you, that you can this morning believe in Jesus Christ and his blood shed for you once for all. You can believe in him. You can stop listening to me now and start talking to Jesus and tell him, I believe in you and your blood shed for me. It was shed for me to take away all my uncleanliness, to take away all the things I've seen, done, experienced. And even though your chaos may not go away instantly, even though your suffering may not leave you instantly, in a moment you can have peace with the God of the universe. And if you don't know Jesus, I invite you to trust in him and his blood that was shed for you. In this moment, you can have grace and peace multiplied to you. That you can be rightly connected to your creator. Isn't that amazing? You have that opportunity that your life could change in an instant for eternity because of the hope that we have in the blood of Jesus Christ. As we close, I want to just talk about some practical things. As we open up this book, we're going to get into a lot more practical things. But just a few things today for you to put this into practice and for us to live what we learn. The first thing I want you to see is that we need to bring it to God first. Bring it to God first. You can write that down. That in the midst of your suffering, that you would go to God first. It's interesting. As Peter starts this letter, he begins to talk about God the Father this Holy Spirit that sanctifies us, the Son who, by his blood, 
saves us. He begins to allude to that even in just the greeting, even in just these two verses. And he's writing to these people who are exiles, suffering. He's speaking to us, God's speaking to you and I who may be suffering. And he's pointing us first, not to a to-do list, but to God, to his character, to how God operates. Because we need to go to God first. So many times we go to other people, so many times we drift away from God in the midst of our suffering. We can see even in just these few verses that we have a Father who knows, a Spirit who sanctifies, and a Son who saves. And that should give us hope, and it should cause us to go to God first. We see that in the Psalms. In the Psalms, if you read through those, you never see people complain about God, do you? They always complain directly to God. And so in the midst of your suffering, bring it to God First, the second thing I want you to see is to be honest. Another thing that you see as you read through the Psalms is a transparency. Sometimes a transparency that makes you feel uncomfortable. Right? If you've read some of the Psalms, specifically like Psalm 109, if you read that one, if you read some others, sometimes if you read it honestly, you feel a little bit like, I don't know if you should be talking like that to God. But what you see through that is that David and others can be honest with God because God can handle it. Because he knows everything. Because he's seen everything. Because nothing surprises him. And so your deepest regret, your deepest pain, your deepest hidden sin that you're holding on to right now, and you think, I can never bring that to God. He wouldn't understand. I'm the exception to the rule. You need to know that God sees, God knows, and you can be honest. You can be honest. So we go to God first. We are honest with God. These two action steps are really exhaling or crying out to God, which is really important in the midst of suffering. It's a lamenting that you need to participate in. But the last thing is an inhaling. The last thing is we need to breathe in truth, that we would deliberately breathe in truth about God's character, about his promises, about his provision for our lives. Some of you are thinking, I don't have a lot of provision that I can look back on. Go to some other people. Find some other people today. Find some other people in a, in a community group that you can go to and say, how has God worked in your life? Because I'm not seeing it right now. Go to somebody else. Come to me. Let us walk alongside with you and show you God's provision. Read biographies in Christian history and see how God made provision over and over, how he's faithful. Read scripture. We talked about Moses Listen, everybody in Scripture, everybody that God uses is not holy except for Jesus. So you can read account after account after account and see what God is doing. See his promises and his provision through the lives of others. And I would imagine if you really thought about it, you can see it in your own life. That we would be honest with God. We would exhale and that we would inhale truth. That we would be intentional. You would have verses that you go to. You struggle with body image. You're suffering at your job. You're struggling with your finances. You're suffering in your marriage. That you have verses that you go to. You put them on a card in your pocket, whatever you need to do. You put them on your phone, and you read those verses, and you remind yourself of truth. You breathe it in intentionally, daily, especially in the midst of suffering. These are just a few things you can do as we start the book. But listen, we're going to get way more into what hope looks like, what a real hope, what a living hope looks like, not in a new year, but in a timeless God. These are just a few verses at the beginning. 
of the story. These are just the first two verses of the letter. And if you grasp this hope that Peter proclaims, it will transform you. It'll transform your suffering. It will shape you. It will form you. So I invite you to join us in this study of 1 Peter, to read it on your own, to grab hold of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Let's lean in that together as we pray. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you for this moment. I just want to thank you for this time where we can start this great book. Father, it's so rich. It's two verses. We just made it through two verses. You're greeting. And we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We see your character. We see your provision. We see how we can have hope beyond despair. God, I pray for these men and women that wouldn't be a trite saying, that wouldn't be a good feeling, that wouldn't be something nice to think about as we go into the new year, but that would become a reality in their lives. That maybe they're coming out of suffering, maybe they're in the midst of it, maybe it's around the corner, but God, you would teach us how to have a living hope, an abiding hope in you, to walk in that and to help others do the same. Father, that's what we ask for. We need your help desperately, and so we ask for it now. It's by your spirit, and through your word, we pray. Amen.